Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies. I'm Craig Savillo, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Stephen Remy about his excellent new book, The Malbany Massacre, The War Crimes Trial Controversy, published by Harvard in 2017. Dr. Remy, hello, and welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Great to have you. Um, Dr. Remy, we like to begin these interviews by having us uh, having you tell us something about yourself. Uh, well, I am uh, originally from the Midwest. I studied international relations when I was an undergraduate, and, and had a already had, had a strong interest in in history, and uh, developed a particular interest in the 20th century and the Cold War. And after I graduated, I joined the Peace Corps. And when I came back, I moved to Washington D.C. and I worked uh, for a think tank, the Atlantic Council, which was kind of the unofficial representative of NATO in the United States. And it was a, it was a, a bipartisan, very much a, a, a bipartisan uh, think tank. And there I was very fortunate. I got to interact uh, on a regular basis with, uh, with a number of people who had uh, played a direct role uh, in, uh, in the Cold War, really from start to finish, people like Paul Mitza and, Roseanne Ridgway and Madeleine Albright, and it was uh, it was an extraordinary experience. And after a few years, I I decided that I wanted to to uh, enter graduate study, uh, graduate work, do graduate work in, in the history of the Cold War. And I uh, uh, went to the Contemporary History Institute at Ohio University. Uh, I specifically wanted to work with John Gaddis, and he supervised my master's thesis. And uh, I got very lucky because my interests uh, were really turning to modern German history. And uh, when uh, John Gaddis went to Yale, uh, there was still really an extraordinary lineup of historians uh, at the Institute at Ohio, uh, my Mentor Jeffrey Herf, Norman Goda, Stephen Miner, uh, scholar of um, modern Russian history. Modern Russian history. So I was very fortunate. I had a, 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 a really um, uh, terrific experience there, and uh, wrote my dissertation on uh, the Nazification and denazification of Heidelberg University, which became my first book. Oh, fascinating! Um, yeah, John Gaddis is a sort of a He's a legend in, in that field. He's written some great books about the Cold War. Now, specifically to your book, how did you become interested in the Malmody trial? How did how did this book come about? I was a couple of things. I had uh, been doing research for a number of years uh, on the experiences of Jewish refugees from Nazi Germany who came to the United States and then joined the U.S. Army and then came and then went back, went back to the European theater and went back to Germany. And in the 2000s, I had embarked on a project in which I was 
trying to locate as many as I could and record interviews with them, knowing that it was getting to be about the last chance uh, to do that. And I had collected a little over 20 interviews uh, with uh, uh, men of that uh, of that generation, that profile. They're nearly all uh, nearly all men. Uh, one uh, one woman, Hannah Wardenberg. Uh, I also interviewed the sociologist Hannah Wardenberg. Uh, but I, I my intention originally was to write a book about their about their experiences. And uh, a colleague of mine, uh, uh, Benjamin Head, the historian Benjamin Head, uh, asked me if I if I had ever heard the name William Pearl. And I hadn't. Uh, he was deceased at the time, but I had never heard his name and looked into it and found out that he had been uh, the chief interrogator, one of the chief investigators in the Malmedy Massacre investigation and case. And I, I'd heard of the Malmedy Massacre, of course. I, I didn't know that much about the, the case and about the controversy. And I looked into it, and it just it was one of those things that it just kind of hooks in me. Uh, the story itself just uh, really uh, grabbed me. And one of the things that grabbed me about it was that since it dealt, the, the, the controversy involved uh, accusations of torture and mistreatment by American interrogators, it had this very contemporary resonance hmm. uh, uh, to me. And I had been, spent a lot of time talking to uh, Jewish refugee veterans, uh, many of them, most of them had, had been interrogators at one point, either during the war or after the war in war crimes trial investigations. And, uh, I was interviewing them at the time that the Abu Ghraib scandal was, break, uh, was, um, uh, was breaking out and, uh, uh, a big debate in the United States over interrogation and interrogation methods. And uh, so there was a contemporary, really, uh, I felt there was a really contemporary resonance there. And finally, the last reason is uh, I, in the Malmedy Massacre, I pick up uh, a scene that I had worked on in the Heidelberg Myths, uh, and that's what I call the untangling of modern German history. And what I mean by that is that a lot of what we know or think we knew about post-war Germany, post-World War II Germany, had been shaped or influenced in various ways by former Nazis and those who sympathized with them. Uh, and if you look at different uh, professional fields, for instance, medicine in Germany, the legal profession, uh, as you know, the entire uh, there, uh, the, the history of the German Foreign Office uh, is another good example. Um, uh, the controversy over the uh, the Reichstag fire that, uh, again, my colleague uh, Benjamin Head has 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 written about so brilliantly. Uh, the Malmedy case fits into that category. I discovered uh, in that a lot of what we knew about the case, the investigation, the trial, the controversy had been shaped by, influenced by former Nazis or those who uh, who sympathized with him, and not just Germans, uh, uh, also uh, Americans. Uh, so that became a big uh, uh, driver of, of my interest in the case. Fascinating. Yeah, I want to ask you again um, in a little bit about about 
the sympathizers, particularly on the American side. But before we get there, um, can you just give our listeners who are, who are not familiar with the massacre itself some sort of background onto what the event is, um, how it took place? Just, just a couple of minutes um, of background. Sure. The, what becomes known as the Mount 80 Massacre uh, took place on the second day of a surprise German counteroffensive into the Ardennes region of southern Belgium, uh, December of 1944, and it becomes known as the Battle of the Bulge, the last uh, important German offensive or counteroffensive of uh, World War II, and uh, it produces uh, the... Well, first of all, it's the it's the costliest intelligence failure in American military history. It produces uh, the deadliest land battle in American military history. Uh, the, the Germans totally surprised, or nearly totally surprised, the Americans. Uh, and the German objective was to uh, punch through American lines and capture Antwerp. Antwerp was the most important port on the continent. Uh, Supplying American and, and Allied British uh, Allied forces after D-Day. Uh, now I, there was no way that the, the Germans were going to uh, reach Antwerp. They didn't have the resources to do it, and the Americans contained uh, the German advance in, in, in a bulge shaped uh, a, a bulge shape in southern Belgium. Uh, the spearhead of the invasion were uh, was comprised of. Waffen SS units. The SS Waffen SS was the Armed Forces Division of the SS. And on the second day, one uh, of these spearheads encountered a lightly armed uh, group of somewhere around 200 Americans. Most of them uh, part of a field artillery observation battalion uh, near the town of Malnadu. And after a brief firefight, the Americans surrendered. The Germans accepted their surrender. Uh, and then uh, attempted to kill all of them. Uh, and uh, this becomes known as the Maumedi Massacre, uh, and it becomes instantly famous or infamous in the United States. Uh, and that's maybe we can, something we can talk about, the publicity. Uh, but then the same German unit, the same Boston SS unit, uh, the combat group, goes on to kill several hundred more American prisoners of war and Belgian civilians. It's often forgotten that that, that uh, uh, Belgian civilians suffered terribly uh, during the liberation of their country and during the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, but this particular incident, December 17th, 1944, uh, 83 or 84 uh, uh, American prisoners of war, prisoners of war are... Uh, executed by uh, elements of uh, this Boston SS combat unit, and that's the Malmedy massacre. Yeah, I want to. I do want to follow up on something you said in that in that in the background piece. Um, the publicity of the event was sort of extraordinary, and you make this point in in the early chapters of your book that the American government, particularly, had sort of shielded the American public from massacres and war crimes um, and and just general bad images of the war. Um, this is not the case with Malmedy. Um, it's publicized right. quickly and widespread, yep. um, and definitely, uh, and, and you can confirm this, um, that it sort of leads particularly to this, you know, specifically to the, a trial for this massacre. I mean, can you talk about this and why 
this happen? Why, why the abrupt change of, I guess, policy, to lack of a better word? Yeah, the by that stage in the war, the the, uh, the War Department and the Office of War Information in the United States uh, was censoring thousands of newspaper stories and and uh, and uh, newsreel footage and photographs, and uh, it was very rare, very rare for Americans, the American public, to be shown photographs of. Uh, fallen American soldiers. Uh, there had been one important exception in, uh, published in, I believe, 1941 or 42 in New Guinea. Uh, George Strock's famous photograph of, of uh, fallen Marines in uh, New Guinea, published in Life magazine. But that was really rare, uh, and that uh, uh, that <laughs> official taboo, so to speak, was broken again after the Maumee. Massacre, and uh, you know, I think um, Dwight Eisenhower, uh, who was who was crucial in uh, in uh, allowing uh, or encouraging a lightning quick publicity campaign. I think his primary interest was uh, that the news reach American soldiers fighting in Belgium as quickly as possible. Uh, and there's good evidence that uh, the publicity had an effect on, uh, had an instantaneous effect on American soldiers, uh, encouraging them to fight with particular tenacity. Uh, so I think that was, uh, I've always believed that that was Eisenhower's uh, first impulse. Uh, but I think that there was a political dimension to this too, to show the American public, especially once the remains of the victims were discovered. About a month after the uh, after the massacre itself, uh, and there's a, a an incredible two-page spread of large photographs with very little text of uh, some of the victims, and it uh, published in Life magazine in February 1945, and they're very graphic. Uh, they're shocking. They're to this day uh, they are uh, they're absolutely shocking to look at. Uh, so I think that there may have also been a kind of why we fight uh, impulse um, uh, driving the Office of War Information's decision to allow the publication of those uh, uh, of those photographs. Sure. Yeah. No. That that makes perfect sense. And and there are photographs in your book that highlight how horrific the massacre was. Um, so yeah, I reproduced I, I, I reproduced the Life magazine spread in uh, in the book. Yeah. Um, so we have the massacre. The the remains are discovered. Uh, obviously, we win the Battle of the Bulge. We ultimately defeat Nazi Germany. So now preparations are being made for trials. Um, well, how did this particular event come to trial? What were the Immediate steps following the war, or were they were they preparing for trials even before the war ended? This particular trial, before the war even ended. Uh, yes, the well, Dwight Eisenhower uh, uh, made it clear that uh, he wanted the, the the perpetrators caught uh, and brought to justice, and uh, by that time, by the time of the massacre, uh, the United States government um, 
allied governments were already discussing and making plans for post-war war crimes trials, and the new division uh, of the War Department's judge advocate, there was a new division of the War Department's judge advocate that would be responsible for investigating and prosecuting war crimes trials. Uh, and that division made the Malmady case a, uh, a top priority. Uh, now, that said, um, Eisenhower had also... Uh, 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 decreed that ordered that uh, no war crimes trials take place before the end of hostilities, uh, because there was a. Con- uh, I think the main thing, the main issue there was uh, concern for uh, 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 Allied prisoners of war in German hands. Uh, so, with one very minor uh, exception, uh, no uh, no trials were held. Uh, of Germans accused of war crimes before the, the war ended. So uh, there, there, there's a kind of preliminary investigation that takes place uh, by a joint American-British uh, uh, court, but no, no, uh, um, no full-scale uh, investigation uh, begins really until um, really begins to pick up steam until uh, the fall of 1945. And so, what was the prosecution's case? How did, how did they put it together? Um, what evidence did they use? Generally, how did they go about prosecuting the trial? Yeah, the uh, uh, the, the prosecution uh, was initially focused on just the Malmedy massacre because that's what they had the 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 clearest evidence of, and there was forensic evidence that the bodies had been, uh, the bodies of the victims had been recovered. Uh, I should add that um, among the massacres, many massacres committed by the Waffen-SS in both the East and West during World War II, uh, the Malmedy incident was unusual because uh, 50, uh, uh, 50 prisoners of war survived. Uh, survived the initial attempt to uh, kill them, uh, mainly by playing dead in this snow-covered field where they were being, um, uh, where they had been captured and where uh, the execution attempt took place. Uh, They played dead and they uh, waited until dark. Some of them were wounded uh, and they made their way to various uh, American checkpoints where they were picked up by by American patrols. Uh, so uh, there was a lot of eyewitness evidence uh, available, and a number of, uh, of American survivors would testify for the prosecution during the trial. Uh, so the body, there were the bodies. Uh, there, um, uh, there were intelligence reports, uh, some of them collected by uh, Jewish refugees serving in the American Army who had been trained, specially trained interrogators, uh, about the composition, the personnel of the responsible Waffen-SS combat group. Uh, and then as the prosecution, as the investigators investigate, they, they, they realize that the Malmedy massacre was only one of multiple war crimes committed by this Waffen-SS unit. Uh, it had gone on to kill a number uh, of other American prisoners of war and Belgian civilians. So ultimately, the uh, 
the accused in the case were accused uh, of, of participation, not just in the Maumee massacre, but often uh, uh, other war crimes. Uh, so, the, the, to get more specifically to your question, uh, the, the prosecution was making the case that when Adolf Hitler himself had uh, conceived of this operation, he gave orders to his generals uh, that uh, they, the Waffen-SS and the German army was to spread a wave of panic and terror uh, among the, the Americans, the British, and Belgian civilians, uh, and they were to show no mercy. And uh, as was so often the case in, uh, in Nazi Germany, his subordinates, his generals in the army and the Waffen-SS did not need to be instructed specifically as to what that meant. Uh, and uh, a lot of the officers in Waffen-SS responsible for this massacre had a lot of experience fighting in the Soviet Union uh, or in uh, Italy later in the war, and uh, they understood uh, how they were to operate, and I call the way that they operate in the book Terror War, uh, in which uh, the objective of the fighting is not just uh, to achieve this or that concrete objective, uh, but also to spread uh, fear and panic. Right. Uh, so the prosecution said that. Yeah, so the prosecution made the claim that this, this that the that the uh, that Hitler this started with with Hitler was passed uh, through the ranks, uh, and uh, the the Waffen SS was to uh, uh, was to take no prisoners. Um, Especially shouldn't the conditions really make that uh, really get in the way of of, of their rapid advance, and uh, they uh, operated accordingly. Sure. Um, so this is a good time to transition into the defendants. Um, right. You give a a very um, the big picture as to how these units behaved, but who are the principal defendants at this trial? Um, who are they? Um, how fanatical are they? How did they defend themselves? And so on. Well, the highest visibility uh, defendant in the trial at the time uh, was uh, an SS general, uh, Josef Sepp Dietrich, went by the name Sepp. Uh, and he uh, was one of Hitler's oldest and most loyal uh, generals. Uh, he was a figure that, that most people, they had followed the war, uh, and knew something about uh, the German military. Uh, they would have recognized that name. Uh, and uh, for me, though, uh, and I think for most historians, the, the, the most, the more fascinating and important defendant at the trial was the commander of the battle group. Uh, this battle group was part of the uh, Waffen-SS Leibstandarte Adolf Hitler, which I translate in the book as personal standard. Uh, it often gets translate as, translated as bodyguard. Uh, I think personal standard conveys more of the, a bit more of the ceremonial uh, um, symbolic significance of, of that particular unit named for, named for Adolf Hitler. And this is uh, Joachim Piper. Uh, and uh, 
uh, Piper is uh, really, uh, I, I think, the most fascinating of the of the defendants. Uh, he's some somebody that historians have been really interested in. Well, both historians, but also Boston SS apologists and neo Nazis. Uh, he's a, he remains a very uh, a very popular figure and martyred too because he was murdered in 1976. Uh, but uh, but those two, uh, Dietrich and, and Piper. Uh, and especially Piper, I think, were the most important defendants. Now, I, I, the, other, the other thing I'll say about the defendants, and one of the things that makes this case interesting, 74 defendants uh, in the trial, they represent a, a real cross-section of the Waffen SS. So there's everybody from Sepp Dietrich to the battle group's commander, Joachim Piper, uh, and then uh, a... a a, a fairly significant number of non-commissioned officers, and then uh, there are uh, there are a handful of privates uh, and very young, 17, 18 years old at the time of the incident, uh, men who had been drafted into the Waffen SS very late in the war. And, and you asked about ideological conviction. Uh, you know, I, there's no question that Jeff Dietrich and um, Joachim Piper and a lot of the NCOs were um, were devoted Nazis. Uh, Piper, I think, was as pure a product of the SS as you could find uh, anywhere. He had been uh, Heinrich Himmler's adjutant. Uh, he had fought in France and Russia and Italy and then in the Battle of the Bulge. Um, so, uh, but you go further down the ranks and younger in age, and I think you see uh, less less ideological conviction and more um, well, more fear, I think, uh, and especially among the very young, uh, the very young conscripts. So, you make very clear in the book, um, sort of at the time and even historically up to your book. Um, there were a number of allegations that the defendants were tortured to exact confessions. Right. Um, you make very clear in your book that this is a myth. Um, so right. I want to. I want to. I, I think I feel like this point is sort of central to what you're getting at. Um, so I want to kind of take it in two halves. Um, one, the first is to where does this come from? Where does this myth come from? Um, and how does it become so pervasive and um, resilient. Um, I mean, you can you still see. I mean, years later, decades later, this still being talked about as if it actually happened. Um, so let's let's start right. with that, right. and then I'll. Yeah, in terms of the origins, uh, this goes to the way the answer to that question goes to the way that the investigation was uh, conducted. The investigation, uh, the investigation, the chief interrogator in the investigation was William Pearl, and Pearl. Uh, was a trained interrogator, and it, it needs to be mentioned here that during World War II, the United States had created a pretty sophisticated system for training interrogators, uh, and this uh, this training facility was at Camp Ritchie in Maryland, uh, and it was I it was a it was a strange place. One of, one of its, uh, one of the trainees later described it as the strangest place in the United States. And, 
uh, a number of different uh, people, uh, men of different nationalities, trained uh, as psychological warfare operatives or interrogators or other kinds of intelligence specialties at Camp Ritchie. Uh, and they uh, were trained uh, not uh, to use uh, physical force uh, in uh, obtaining information, uh, and uh, they were trained to use tricks and ruses, uh, good cop, bad cop routines, uh, those kinds of, uh, those kinds of investigative techniques, and, uh, William Pearl was one of them. In fact, he was briefly an instructor, uh, at the, at Camp Ritchie. So he has a, he has a, he has a tr- background, uh, uh, as a trained interrogator and then an experienced interrogator in the war, and he becomes the chief interrogator in, in the, uh, Malmady case. Now, so you have to imagine, here, uh, this, uh, group of suspects, being interrogated, being questioned by uh, a fluent German speaker uh, who seems to know a great deal about their background. Uh, and this is one of the things that I learned about uh, the investigation uh, is uh, most of it did not involve dramatic, cinematic-style confrontations in a, in, a, in a cell. Most of it involved a, uh, a, a grind of... Uh, compiling information. Uh, and the interrogators assumed that the more that they knew about the unit and the suspects in question, uh, the better able they would be to conduct productive interrogations. Uh, so they very often surprised people with how much information that they knew about the different uh, uh, parts of this often SS unit. Nicknames, personal grudges, details uh, about uh, very minute details about uh, the the operations there in the uh, Ardennes. So it was often easy to convince a suspect that uh, the interrogators knew more than they might have actually known, and this was essential to getting this was essential to getting information. Now uh, they obtained confessions. The interrogators. Uh, Obtained written confessions, and I think that the defendants, in the, ultimately, in the, in the, when the trial began, shortly before the trial began, were shocked uh, to discover that uh, dozens of their comrades had informed on each other, had accused each other of committing crimes, uh, given eyewitness, provided eyewitness testimony of crimes being committed. Uh, and that was quite a shock. And shortly before the trial began, a few claimed to the defense team, which was led by an American uh, and comprised also of some German defense lawyers, uh, that they had been abused. And uh, the chief defense lawyer, uh, uh, Colonel, U.S. Army Colonel Lewis Everett, uh, properly brought the matter to the detention of higher authorities, and one of the first of many investigations into the allegations were uh, was conducted, and uh, the, the accusations were found to be baseless. Uh, uh, so all of this, remember, takes, uh, it takes place before the trial. Uh, and uh, only a few of the defendants during the trial claim that they had been 
that they had been physically abused. So after the trial, during the controversy, uh, the, the, the prosecutors would would be banging their head against the wall, uh, trying to get up the op- what they thought was, was the obvious point across, which was, look, if the defendants had been tortured, the time to have, to have brought that out was in the trial itself, uh, not later. So why does anybody believe what these what these people are saying? So uh, that's where it starts. It starts with the defendants themselves. Uh, you asked how it became so pervasive and so um, uh, resilient. Uh, that's a, a very complicated. Uh, that's a complicated issue. Uh, I think there's two things going on. One uh, is there is a, an attempt by the convicted men and their supporters to uh, uh, to, to overturn the challenge and uh, challenge the sentences uh, and to overturn the verdicts and uh, get the convicted men released from prison. Uh, convicted men want this. Their supporters want that. Law, uh, that is a number of German lawyers, a number of prominent German clergymen. Uh, and there is also uh, uh, an American dimension to this. The, it starts with the, the chief defense attorney, Willis Everett. Uh, he loses the trial badly. Uh, he's facing the prospect of returning to his struggling law firm in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, professional obscurity. And he thinks that he's got a, an incredible story here. And there's some evidence uh, that... Everett had it in his mind that this story was going to make him rich and famous. Um, it's possible that he envisioned um, uh, the story, rights to the story being bought by Hollywood and, and Hollywood making a, a war crimes trial version of 12 Angry Men or Mr. Smith <laughs> goes to Washington and, and his character would be played by Henry Fonda or Jimmy Stewart. Uh, I think that there, there, there's a publicity-seeking element to this by Willis Everett. Now, there's another factor, too, with Everett, and that is that Everett, like a significant number of American occupation officials, sympathized with the defeated Germans, not their victims, and in Everett's case, uh, uh, sympathized uh, very strongly with uh, the men in the Malmady case, particularly uh, Joachim Piper. Piper could speak English. Uh, he was charismatic. Um, his wife, uh, Sigurd, had been uh, one of Heinrich Himmler's uh, personal secretaries. That's how Joachim Piper and Sigurd met and married. She uh, remained a, a, a very active advocate for her convicted husband. Uh, and I think Everett was uh, Everett was uh, uh, was sympathetic. And I think the uh, one other point about Everett that needs to be made by his own admission. By Everett's own admission, he was a, he, Everett, was a proud man of the American South. He described himself as a rebel. Uh, and I think that there was something about the occupation of Germany that resonated with him as an American Southerner. Uh, and I don't, I don't want to stereotype, uh, uh Americans in the, uh, uh, in the South, uh, and, uh, take that, uh, too far, but, uh, but we have, by his own admission, Everett uh, describing himself in those terms. 
so I think that plays a role there, uh, a role there also. Sure, and, and this is a good transition because I want to ask you about um, there's a wide network of people that are involved in sympathizing with these guys. Um, it's a matter of great interest not only for elites in in legal circles or in government circles, mm-hmm. but for gen- for ordinary Germans as well. Um, so mm-hmm. and and Americans because um, it does cross the pond and uh, becomes an issue of, of importance here. Uh, um, so, what is their argument? How do they disseminate it, and how effective is it with ordinary people? Well, their argument uh, takes a couple of forms. Uh, one is is general, related to the war and the occupation, and another is specific to the Malmedy case. And the general argument uh, in defense of the, the defendants, the convicted men, is that this trial, and like other war crimes trials, were instances of victor's justice. Okay. Uh, so to put it in the simplest terms, the argument was that, well, look, you know, the, the, the British, the Americans, the Russians, they won the war, so of course they were going to hold these trials. And as lawyers, clergymen, uh, uh, army and German army and, and SS veterans, uh, as, as they would state repeatedly about this in other cases, they pointed out that, look, the, the, the Soviets in particular were responsible. Well, first of all, they were partly responsible for starting the war. Okay. Uh, nobody wants to talk about this, uh, in 1945 and 46 and 47, but that, uh, it was, the case, uh, and then they committed uh, many of the kinds of crimes that Germans are now being held responsible for. Uh, another argument was that the Allies were leveling a charge of collective guilt at all Germans, which wasn't in fact the case, but uh, was part of this part of this argument that I think is one that that uh, uh, had to have resonated strongly with with ordinary Germans, even if you weren't. And, active in, in opposing war crimes trials. Uh, specifically to the Malmady case was uh, that uh, a couple of things. One, uh, there was acceptance of the defense's position at the trial uh, that uh, this was a heat of battle case. All right. I mean, at the trial, the defense had to, could not get around the fact that Something happened in in uh, this tiny rural uh, crossroads in Belgium, uh, and it's pretty clear that it was a it was a war crime, or it could easily be, uh, appear to be that way. Uh, uh, and uh, so the defense uh, it said, "Look, this wasn't premeditated. There was no uh, conspiracy. There was no order to spread terror and panic and and kill prisoners of war and civilians. This was just it was it was a it was a heat of battle." Uh, case and that kind of thing, a heat of battle, heat of battle conditions could affect any soldier in any war. Uh, so this is a tragedy. It's terrible. It's not a war crime. Uh, so that argument was picked up after the war. Then finally, of course, there was the uh, there were the torture accusations, uh, which Willis Everett, uh, among a few others, was uh, uh, trying to disseminate in the United States to. Anybody who would listen uh, to the army, of course, but also to the press, 
uh, and uh, his, uh, the supporters of the convicted men in Germany, uh, particularly two clergymen, one in the Catholic Church and one in the Protestant Church, two of, two of Germany's most prominent uh, uh, clergymen, were convinced that uh, that the uh, that the, the defendants had been abused horribly. Uh, now, uh, what I'll add to that is that. In 1947 and in 1948, some of the convicted men, with the assistance of prison clergy and their lawyers, began writing uh, affidavits describing in gruesome detail what the Americans had done to them. Uh, and this was really gruesome stuff. Uh, broken bones and crushed testicles and smashed teeth and... I don't think there was a single important American official who took any of that seriously. Uh, you read it now, and it sounds like a hack screenwriter's attempt at dramatizing torture. Uh, but they were prepared as legal documents, as affidavits, and then they were uh, they got wide publicity, both in uh, Western Germany and in the United States. Uh, so the, the many people, many Germans. Uh, it took those accusations at face value. And the last thing I'll add to this is that there were ways for the convicted men supporters to convey that, uh, some of the principal investigators had been Jews, had been Jewish refugees from Nazi Germany. Now they had to be very careful in the language that they used. They could not use overt anti-Semitic language. Uh, but terms like avenging angels uh, and recent Americans uh, is one that appears both in the American and German context. Uh, and it did not take much imagination to figure out what those right what they meant by that refugee, yeah. references meant by that. What that what it meant was Jewish revenge. The Jews had come back to Germany and were now taking revenge on uh, on the helpless defeated Germans. I mean, so you make clear in the book that all of these these allegations are completely false, um, fabricated. There there were no confirmable instances of torture, correct? I do make that case, yes. Now, uh, it is clear that uh, in a few cases, uh, one or more investigators lost his temper. Uh, uh, people were, uh, in some cases, were shouted at. Uh, 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 perhaps slapped or shoved, uh, but the accusations leveled by the convicted men themselves and then disseminated by their supporters, uh, I, I, I contend are, are absolutely baseless. Uh, and, you know, one of the, one of the things I did in research for the book is in the National Archives, uh, outside Washington, uh, in, in records related to this and other war crimes trials conducted by the army, there are thousands and thousands of pages of interrogation transcripts. Not reports of interrogations, but actual transcripts. And I reproduced part of one of them at, at some length. I, 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 it takes a few pages in the book, but I wanted to convey something, and that uh, is that this isn't like an episode of 24. <laughs> I mean, uh, they're, they're almost unbearably boring, uh, to read them, which is interesting. Uh, 
they mostly what the interrogators are, are, are doing is what I mentioned earlier is that they're they're trying to compile information which may or may not include a confession of of responsibility of guilt. It's it, it, but it's but it's fascinating. Uh, it, there are moments of drama. You can find them uh, in these interrogation transcripts, but they're few and far between. Uh, and uh, they bear no resemblance, absolutely no resemblance to uh, what the convicted men, how the convicted men described the, the conditions of their interrogations. Yeah, uh, I just wanted you to elaborate on that because I feel like it's such an important part of the book, and I want all the listeners to understand um, how they made these accusations, but they were baseless and um, the reasons behind that. Um, so I want to shift gears a little bit, and I want to ask you about how the changing sort of political situations um, in Europe, mostly the Cold War, sort of impacted this trial and its aftermath. Yeah. Well, I think 1949 is, is definitely a turning point uh, for the fate of convicted war criminals. That's the uh, – uh, by the end of the year – Two German states had come into existence, and of course, this didn't happen overnight. This had been building up for some time. Uh, a division of of the country into two separate states. I mean, this was a very complicated legal and diplomatic matter, of course. And one of the complicating factors is the fate of convicted war criminals who, in Germany, uh, in Western Germany, remain. Uh, under the, the the purview or the control of either the French or the British or the Americans, even after the establishment of two separate states of of a of West German West German state, the Federal Republic of Germany. Uh, for the first couple of years of its existence, the Federal Republic was not entirely sovereign. There was a High Commissioner, an Allied High Commissioner, and John McCoy was the most famous uh, of them in uh, in West Germany. But one of the High Commissioner's responsibilities uh, was the fate of of, uh, of Germans convicted by uh, the Allies in the Nuremberg trials and in, in the different zonal trials. Uh, and this was this was a huge deal uh, for uh, for Germans, and of course for uh, for veterans. Uh, the German army for veterans of the Waffen SS. The Waffen SS veterans had been, uh, uh, had created, uh, a large number of local, uh, veterans groups, which eventually merge into a single national veterans lobby, uh, uh to lobby for the, uh, the interest, in the interests of Waffen SS veterans. Uh, and, uh, uh Particularly uh, after the Korean War breaks out in 1950, and uh, the discussion about rearming West Germany, uh, and then possibly making West Germany part of NATO, uh, part of the the, 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 the alliance. Uh, this uh, the, the war the, the question of the fate of war criminals enters into this. Uh, uh, the uh, German army and Waffen SS veterans are saying. To the West German political establishment, uh, we we won't support uh, a new West German army uh, when our comrades uh, who have been unjustly persecuted and convicted uh, are in uh, uh, are in prison. So 
there is a Cold War dimension to this, most definitely. Uh, in London and in Washington in particular, uh, there is a clear awareness that this is a, that the fact that there are war criminals in prison uh, is uh, is a real problem. And Norman Goda, of course, has written about this uh, in the case of Spandau Prison uh, and the, the, the convicted men in the main Nuremberg trial. Uh, and the controversy over the fate of the Malmedy men uh, is another dimension to this uh, to this problem, right? Mm. Uh, uh, what what happens to the what happens to the convicted uh, convicted men? And ultimately, as I described in the book, the, uh, the solution is not a, a legal one. For a long time, the advocates of the convicted men have been pressing for legal solutions for retrial. Uh, or they had demanded that the Americans uh, overturn the verdicts. Uh, instead, what we get is uh, a series of parole and clemency boards. And so this was more of a it had a legal dimension to it, but it, this was more of a political solution uh, than uh, than a purely legal one. Uh, so throughout the uh, um, first half of the 1950s. Uh, the convicted men are uh, are paroled and have their sentences reduced. And uh, by the beginning of um, 1956, I think it, I think it is, uh, or 1957, every last convicted man in the uh, uh, in the Malmedy case is free. Um, good. That that leads us to my last question about the book. Uh, in your mind, what is the legacy of this trial in this case? Well, I think there are a couple of, of legacies. Um, as uh, as I described in the book, uh, the controversy surrounding the case produces uh, uh, the second major Senate, United States Senate investigation into interrogation methods. The first followed the uh, uh, U.S.-Philippine War in 1902. The second was the Malmedy case, and the third was the more recent uh Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, uh, the so-called Feinstein Committee. Uh, and the Malmedy uh, investigation uh, uh, was conducted by a, a subcommittee of the uh, Senate Armed Services Committee. Uh, and an informal member of that committee was Joseph McCarthy. And McCarthy was at that time uh, not really nationally known. Uh, this was before his infamous speech in West Virginia. Uh, and his Political career was really going, kind of going down the tubes, and uh, he saw an opportunity, uh, I think, to uh, uh, to really make a splash. And he had before him copies of these translated affidavits and uh, newspaper stories, and he thought this was an open and shut case. Open and shut case. These kids had been tortured by American interrogators, and the army was trying to cover it up. And, uh, you know, he, uh, he makes a complete fool of himself uh, in committee hearings and eventually storms out, accusing the army of making a cover up, of covering up, uh, abuse. Uh, but he doesn't know what he's talking about. If you read the transcript of the, uh, of the, of the hearings, he's hopelessly, hopelessly confused. Uh, and in part because he's going up against the former interrogators themselves, and he's absolutely no match. He's no match for William Pearl. He's no match for these people. Uh, but you asked me about the legacy, so here's my point. The Army officials, the investigators, the prosecutors, they 
these men aren't famous then or now. They weren't particularly powerful. They defended their institution. They defended the army. They defended their record. Uh, they stood up for the truth. Uh, they stood up to a lying demagogue, uh, as did, I should add, the, uh, uh, the American senator who uh, presided over the investigation uh, investigation itself, the Senate investigation itself. He stood up to a demagogue in his own party. Uh, and I think that's that's one of the that's one of the legacies. Um, I think another one is that this is a story involving what we now call fake news, or this is the history of the Malmady controversy is a story that we're involving what we would now call fake news. The press really fell down on the job. I have to say, in this case, the press in the United States, the press in Western uh, in Western Germany. Uh, one of the reasons the, 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 the former investigators were so angered by the torture stories was that no one was asking them. Before the Senate investigation, no one was asking them for their side of the story. They were simply presenting these, these horrible stories uh, and uh, giving a clear impression that they were true and that the Army was, was desperately trying to cover up this terrible business. But nobody was talking to the interrogators. Uh, and some of them were still active duty, so they were cons- very constrained in what they could say. But uh, uh, most of them, including William Pearl, were not. They had gone back into civilian life. Uh, and they mobilized in advance of the Senate hearings. Uh, and uh, it's a good thing that they did so. Uh, they mobilized to defend their records. Uh, and especially when, when McCarthy was involved. Uh, it was a good thing that they had, they really came prepared to, to the hearings. Um, no, fascinating. Um, and before we let you go, first I want to say to all our listeners, this is a really great book. Um, you should definitely go out and read it. Um, but before I let Dr. Remy go, I'd like to ask, uh, what are you working on now? Well, now I'm, I'm changing, uh, uh, shifting gears, uh, considerably. I, I, uh, am, Starting to work on a uh, on a big book about uh, armed conflict in the uh, in the imperial world, as I call it, uh, from roughly the late 19th century through the period of decolonization. So, it's not uh, going to be specifically a book about Germany or Germany in the United States or the occupation, but uh, a book with a much wider uh, wider scope. And I've been teaching some courses on the subject and. Uh, uh, like the Malmady book, it's one of those topics that it gets its hooks into you and then really won't let go. Uh, so that's what I'm working on now. Well, that sounds like a fascinating project, and I'd love to have you back on the show to talk about it. I really want to thank you again for agreeing to be on the show, and I want to thank everybody for listening, and we will see you next time.